Good morning, I'm Mark Blair. Today our scripture reading can be found in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If you can turn to page 984 in your pew Bible, you can read along with me. Again, that's page 984, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, what's good to see everybody? My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's fun to start off the new year with you. Let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll get some orientation and then jump into this passage. But let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for all that you've already done. Uh, We've sang some pretty important words already about our need and your grace and your mercy. I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would continue working in our hearts. Uh, Would you draw us to yourself? Would you encourage us? Would you correct us? Would you help us? Pray you draw people to yourself in ways that lead to salvation, that lead to healing, that lead to repentance, that lead to hopefulness as they go forward. So use your word, Holy Spirit, we ask as we look at it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, tis the season to talk about change and new beginnings, and that's actually not the primary reason why we're doing a series on transformation, although I think it connects well and it's already kind of in your mind. So there was a small bit of strategy there. There, Bigger than that, though, is the idea that as a church, uh, we want to just kind of zoom in a little bit about what we're trying to focus on as a people. And if you've been around for a while, there's been lots of changes, really uh, dating back several years. There's been a lot of churches gone through. You've gone through a lot of change personally and individually, and then our country and our city and your relationships have gone through tons of change. This church has gone through a whole lot of change. And so as we think about just kind of where we are, what we're focused on, it makes sense to stop and just ask, hey, what is the main thing that we're about as a people? Because as we face change all around us, if there's something secure and stable we can hold on to, uh, then we can actually endure some of that change. So let me actually be really clear for a moment. I think I've gotten a little bit sloppy as we've kind of introduced this series a little bit. Um, It is a little bit about kind of our church's philosophy and what we were trying to focus on as a people, but that is way too small of a focus. If all we did, as riveting as it would be, is talk about our philosophy of ministry for a couple weeks, I would guess it wouldn't bring much life to you unless that philosophy of ministry is tied to something that is big and substantial that actually runs and rules the universe. Jesus himself, the one who actually is, the one who accomplishes change for us and makes transformation actually possible. If we focus there, then as we ask questions of how does our church match what he's doing or follow him or be his disciple or apprentice after Jesus, then we have some staying power in a series about what are we trying to do as a people. So so we could front load first where Adam had us last week in the preeminence of Christ, the one who rules and reigns over the entire universe. If that's where we start, then it does make sense that we would ask, okay, how do we try to live as a people? But if we flip that around and start with what are we trying to do as a church, we, we could actually lose our way a little bit. So I want to just remind us coming in and kind of own the idea that there's actually a wind that always is pulling us away from what might feel most important. 
There's uh, things that are near to us. There's things that feel like urgent needs. There's desires and longings and habits and traditions that we have that can actually get kind of in front of the idea of, of what's most important. And so just stop as a church and say, hey, what are we focused on will actually help us. And let me just say this is by word of encouragement. I listened to a podcast a couple of weeks ago. It was on like management and hiring and staff. And uh, it was by a guy who I really admire some of the work he's done on just like cultural dynamics and he talked about the fact that it takes four years to get oriented to like a new job and he said the first year is orientation the second year is experimentation the third year is evaluation and the fourth year is something like acceleration or something like that it was a it was a powerful podcast but but as he went through that I thought man that fits kind of our narrative so I've been the pastor here for two years Uh, I feel like there was this season of orientation and hearing stories and in the last year if you've been around a while we have experimented a ton So we've tried different liturgies, we've experimented with orders of service, we've tried different songs, different structures and strategies. We've been experimenting quite a bit. And I just want to affirm, our folks who have been here for a long time, that is a lot of change in a short amount of time. And like, I want to commend your like patience and godliness and willingness to kind of go along with all those experimentations. And now as we kind of move into this third year, and it's kind of me personally, my third year, it's this space now of of evaluating. But I thought about if I was 80 years old and had been a part of this church for 60 years, I just feel like if it's a chart, how much change had happened in the last two years and loving your pastor wouldn't be enough to make that tolerable. Like just liking what was happening or enjoying growth or something like that wouldn't be enough, I don't think, to actually let you weather that storm. But if you've been anchored into something deeper, if you've been grounded into something that has like substantial like teeth, it has rooted in the cosmos, it's actually part of redemptive history. If you've been anchored in Jesus, then, then what we've been doing actually probably feels like a really small thing. So I just want to affirm and say thanks for those of you who have engaged in the change, even as we round a corner and say, okay, what are we trying to do as a people? I realize it has felt kind of up in the air in some ways, and so this is kind of a, a reminder. Okay, anchoring us a little bit, because the deal is What the universe is about and the reason why you have a desire for change is because we're made to actually relate to God. Christianity is actually a religion of transformation. Jesus came and he promises new life, which means we didn't have it. And so what is a bigger transformation than going from death to life? Jesus came to actually change and transform you. And you could say that Jesus changes everything. And so as a church, as we begin this little series, just to stop and say, we want to focus on who Jesus is and what he's done, not just as the first point in this series, but as the anchor point for this whole thing. He is the head of the church. He's the cornerstone. He really is the foundation, not just of our church, but of the entire universe. And so the longing you have to experience some kind of change, to see things be different, I think is rooted in the way you're created. It's honest about the longings you have for more for God to do, to kind of redeem and change and it actually honors what Christ promised he would do even through his church and so I love that the way this passage starts in Colossians 3 just roots us in in Christ so if you don't hear anything else over the next couple weeks would you hear that Jesus changes everything and he is what our church is about if we get lost in the weeds of a philosophy of ministry and we get sloppy with our language would you just hear like what we're trying to do is follow Jesus And what I want to do in this first couple of verses here is just unpack 
why that is, but let me kind of the way you would maybe pull out a map on your phone when you get directions and it has that little two-inch line that maybe covers lots and lots of miles. Can I just give you like an overview of this text to kind of give you the landscape of where we're going and then we'll zoom back into uh, this first part of the chapter because there's actually like 10 maybe big movements that we're going to cover in seven weeks and I want to make sure you kind of have it in your mind. So there's a slide I think that has this diagram and these circles on it. It's also on this reading guide if you were to grab that. So this reading guide is meant to help you engage these texts throughout the week. We'll read each week the one that we're going to preach on, but also kind of talk through where we are in Old and New Testament that has some parallels to it. So, so this will help you just a little bit as well. But, but essentially what we see in this passage is the process by which transformation happens. What you see in the first 17 verses is that Jesus is the center of change and transformation. So the word gospel is up there in that first circle. It's on the inside. And then you'll see that there's like a change that actually takes place as we trust him and then turn away from other things that we were trusting, which is the biblical word for repentance. You'll see in verses 5 to 11, a call to stop trusting the things of the flesh or the things of the earth or the old way. And so we trust Jesus. We stop trusting things that are apart from him or outside of him that are false gospels, actually. And then we learn to move towards him in these positive redemptive patterns. So you see this gospel circle in the center you see a negative sign and you see a positive sign up there. I meant to say transformation happens as we trust Christ, as we repent and turn away from other things, and as we move towards his redemptive patterns. That's the process by which change happens. And then the next ring out there, the scripture gives us practices that we can use to engage. So this text will talk about the word of God. It will talk about prayer. We'll talk about worship. It will talk about community. These things that we do to kind of engage the heart of God that bring about this transformation by the Spirit, but they're practices that, that we engage with. And then it moves not from just like the things that we're doing. These arrows are meant to show you it goes outward to the places where you live your life. So you see a process of transformation. You see practices that lead to transformation. And then places where we live out our lives. The text will talk about marriage and it will talk about family. So we talk about personal relationships. The gospel is meant to transform you, not just in this room or in your mind, but in your actual relationships. And it moves past those personal relationships to our social and vocational settings, to places where we, we live in the world and where we work and where we engage in those around us. So, so the gospel is meant to transform those spaces as well. And then it moves out to, to those who actually don't know Jesus yet. So there's another relationship that's named in this text as we come into chapter 4. It's those who are in the outside world who are yet, yet to hear. And that might actually describe you this morning. I'm really thankful that you're here because wherever you find yourself kind of with Christianity, I think this passage and this series will serve either as an invitation to know Jesus or as a reminder of who Jesus is and what his people are to be following. So, so that's where I want us to go. We'll dig more into all of those in the weeks to come, but I wanted just to kind of give you the layout. If you've been to a vision meeting, you might have heard that in a 10-minute version in our membership class. We spend a week on that. It's familiar to some of you, but my hope is that that kind of comes into our hearts because this pattern we see in other places in the scripture as well. Some of those parallel passages are meant to just kind of show you that this is the way the Bible talks about how change happens and what we do to initiate and engage with that and then how this is supposed to change and affect our, our whole lives. But it begins with Jesus. There is no change and transformation apart from Jesus. 
Of course, you can lose weight. Of course, you can be more disciplined. Of course, you can, you can strive to learn things. You can change some of your patterns. But this kind of ultimate transformation, moving from death to life, you and I don't have the power to control. The Bible is very clear as we watch the story of redemption. We see that we turned away from God early in the narrative. And we've been dealing with the effects of that throughout history. Personally and corporately, we deal with the impact of sin and we're longing for this change to happen. And the scriptures tell us the great, glorious, beautiful news that we just celebrated in a focused way at Christmas that God actually sent his Messiah to come into the world. He kept promises, he fulfilled history, but he came to change you. He came to actually bring about this new life, this new birth. And so I want to walk through just these first four verses of chapter three in Colossians. I want to talk about the object of our transformation. I want to talk about the options you have of choosing how to be transformed. And then I want to talk about this orientation of transformation that should actually encourage you. So look with me in verse 1 of chapter 3. We'll just talk about the object of transformation. And of course, it's Jesus. He's the one who is the main point. So look with me. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ. There's some code language in this, raised as baptism kind of language. But he's saying, if you have this relationship with Jesus, if you've been raised with him, if you have, have a, a spot where you've trusted him and he's transformed you, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Transformation starts with this capturing our attention, understanding who he is, looking at Jesus as the one who actually rules and reigns over the whole universe. His identity is named there that he sits at the right hand of God at the end of that. He, he reigns supreme. This is where we were last week. He is the preeminent one. He's the one who everything was made by and for. So this one who initiates and the one who is responsible for our transformation is none other than the very God of the universe. Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. That's the space where transformation starts. So his identity is named in that idea but also his power and his power over the entire universe. We read this in our confession, but you'll look in chapter 2, verses 13 and 15. This one who is seated at the right hand of God speaks of his messiahship, his coming to deliver, his, his kingship, his, his mission to actually rescue. And what you see in chapter 2, verses 13 to 15 is that, that he came to actually forgive. Let me just read this. This is chapter 2. Verse 13 of Colossians. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And catch this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. These rulers and authorities are cosmic rulers and authorities. This is the, the spirit world. What he's saying is he rules and reigns over the entire universe, the one who sits at the right hand of God, both because of who he was and what he's done, makes transformation possible. Okay, so what is it that we need to be transformed? And look back at the beginning of verse 1. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ. So I said this is like kind of code or summary language. This is baptism imagery. If you're familiar with Romans chapter 6, when you baptize somebody, normally as you put them under the water, you say, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. It comes from Romans chapter 6. It, it's a language that speaks of what Christ came to do to forgive us. Because the Bible says that we were dead in our sins. That we were enemies of God. 
that we were distant and alien and, and hostile to God. And so what he did when he came into the world to forgive us of our sins is he bore the punishment and the penalty of that so that what stood between us and God could actually be dealt with and released. That he could actually atone for and pay for the thing that actually was leading to our death. So in this space here when it says, if you've been raised with Christ, it means if you're trusting Jesus for your righteousness, to be the one who forgives you of your sin, the one you're looking to to actually move from death to life, then set your mind on things that are above. It speaks of what he has accomplished for us, and it speaks to the severity of what was wrong with us. The reason why change is so hard is because it's not just stuff on the surface. It's at the very core of who we are. The reason why just more information or more behavior or trying harder isn't enough to reform us is because what's broken down deep inside is a cosmic rebellion that actually deserves the wrath of God. So Jesus came and stood in our place and he, he bore the penalty for this. Let me just read this from Romans chapter 6 because it's so beautiful. If you're going to flip back just a couple of pages, it's on 942 in your pew Bible. This is Romans chapter 6. Just listen to the way he talks about what it is that Christ did to free us from this death that we had and what it meant for us to be raised. He says, what then shall we say? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? And we would say, no, because God came to actually change us and transform us. And he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have died have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We were baptized into his death because he died. There's actually forgiveness. But we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection. We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. When you start talking about transformation, you have to talk about Jesus first because he's the one that makes it possible. Because he died, he could deal with what deserved our death. And because he was raised, there's real forgiveness and power for us to actually be transformed. Just in this little verse here, we see his identity and what he accomplished for us. And the fact that he actually promises us new life, even as you deal with the severity of what we actually were facing. And would you just notice this first little word in verse 1 of chapter 3? This word, if. He says, if then you've been raised. Which means that may not be your story. It's not just a given that he died and therefore everyone is automatically, regardless of their faith, set free and forgiven kind of universally. It's universally available to all who would actually trust. There's an invitation in this for you to actually respond. Jesus died a particular death for you, but you have to place your faith in him. It says if because there's this qualifier. This is true for those who are actually in Jesus. So this is identity language. To be, to be hidden with Christ in God later on in verse 3, even just the phrase in Christ is to trust him, to know him, to adore him, to worship him, to actually move towards him. So transformation starts with Jesus, but it's not passive. It starts with our trusting in him. The way that you are raised with Christ is to believe his sacrificial death and resurrection is enough to atone for your sin and make you right with God. And if that's happened, if you have moved towards him, 
then what's true is that you've been set free. That the penalty and the power of that sin both have been paid for and broken so that you actually have hope for redemption and change. He's going to go on just to be honest that we have some choices here, right? He calls us to set our minds on things above, not, not on things below, as if you could actually do one or the other. But in this space, I just want to say this idea that the identity of Jesus' salvation marks his followers. It gives us a place where we actually see ourselves differently. We experience grace because of what he's done. And it's a through faith. There's no cost to it. And yet the scripture says that to actually come to him, we must die to ourselves. So, so this life that happens, this new birth that takes place comes at this death. His death first and then your death to yourself. That's where change actually takes place. It's just important that you know we're not playing games in this room. We're not simply just trying to get some more information in this room. We're not simply trying to grab some more concepts in this room. What we're dealing with in this room is life and death. What Jesus offers you is life in place of your death. When you look at the scriptures like in John 1, it uses dark and light language. In uh, James 3, it uses wisdom from above and wisdom from below language. Romans uses slavery and free language to speak about where we are, what's going on, which actually elevates the beauty of what Christ came to do. He didn't just come to bring like an intellectual reform to help you think better or feel better. He came to actually deal with what was most broken about you. He died for what was inside of you. Change for the Christian comes not from the outside, I'm sorry, not from the inside out as if you muster it up. It comes from the outside in, him giving that to us. So, so if you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he just says, hey, you've got some options here. That's the object of our transformation. The options, though, are to continue to look for transformation some other place or to actually trust him. So he says in verse 2, to set your mind on things that are above not on things that are of the earth, which is code for live into the truth of this gospel story. Set the mind on the things that are true about the heart so that you realize what God has done for you and to live in light of that narrative that I am forgiven, that I am set free, that I no longer am bound to sin, that the shame and the fear. And actually that word seek is written in such a way in the original language to talk about like keep on seeking. It's a thing that we don't ever stop Doing. It's not like you got a little bit of transformation and now you're good. You move on to the rest of your life and the rest of like living into the actualizing of who you are as a person. You're actually always meant to be seeking, whether you're 8 or you're 80. It's a, a progressive, ongoing thing to set our minds on things above and to seek the things that are above. And this is in contrast to the things that are of the earth. He's going to be real practical in the next couple of sections. So in 5 to 11, he's going to name these things of the earth. And kind of in a licentious way, he's going to name things like impurity and passion. This is the stuff that was part of our confession. Slander and malice and, and ways we actually treat each other wrongly. He, so there's a version of the things of the earth that looks like that. It looks like a licentiousness. And then he's going to say in chapter 2, before he gets to this section, there's a legalistic version of that as well. There's, there's a boundary disciplined version where, where we're actually avoiding things and not touching and not tasting and not handling. But he says those things in verse 23 of chapter 2 in Colossians, he says they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Because here's the way the Bible talks. 
you have options. God is in control, but he's not controlling. He loves you and he wants you to know him and follow him. And yet he's not forcing himself on you in such a way that you just automatically kick into neutral and he takes care of the rest. Grace actually is meant to drive you, to discipline you, to motivate you, to help you, to free you, to liberate in such a way that you're actually animated and energized to move towards God. But there's a constant call to Christians to step away from the flesh and to pursue life in the Spirit because it's a constant temptation for you not to do that, for you to go back to the old way. We're saying these are options of transformation, and I would love for you to have in your mind that sin is not first like bad things that you shouldn't do or embarrassing things that if you get caught, it would mess with your reputation or hurt people around you. Sin is first a promise of change. It promises some sort of power or some sort of control, some sort of approval, so some way of managing your life. So, so that hit that you get when you yell at somebody, that promises this situation will change if you just had enough power to soothe what's inside of you that hurts so bad through something immoral promises a kind of change. That, that pain will stop if you would pursue this. The reason why it has so much like grip to your heart is not because it's just bad stuff on the outside. It has a promise of something that's godlike, power and approval and comfort and control and affirmation and security. Sin promises you that if you indulge in these things, then you would actually be able to control your environment. Go back to our first parents in the garden, this idea where knowledge and information was the the lie there that they were told that if they had more of it, they would be like God, they would be safe. And the desire to be like God was at the root of this first temptation. And that forms kind of a DNA for us. All of your temptation, just, just trace it back. Why do you do what you know won't pay? It doesn't have the power to actually fix the indulgence of the flesh, and it actually can't change your situation either. So we keep going to dead-end things knowing they hurt ourselves and those around us. And you're not a fool, friend, in the sense of like you're just ignorant. There's a foolishness in our hearts that the Bible talks about of not knowing God or honoring God or fearing God because we fear the situation more. We fear the circumstance more. We fear the pain more. We feel the sense of being out of control more. And so sin, whether it's listed here in the next section of slander and malice and envy and covetousness, he names it as idolatry. He names it as, as worship of something that promises us new life. So a text like this gives us permission to be really, really honest about what's driving our hearts and why we struggle. I would love for you to come to terms with the idea that the sin in your life is not just like habits. It has a promise. But for today, as he's saying, hey, don't set your mind on things that are below. Set them on things above. Just realize both above and below promise some sort of salvation. They promise some sort of help. They promise some sort of, of freedom. And the reason why you feel stuck is because you're, you're trained to go after that first initial easy soothing. And it's worked in temporary ways for so long that you convince yourself that maybe just this time, maybe one more click on that, one more purchase of that, one more relationship, one, one more thing, one more achievement, one more accomplishment, one more deception, then I'll be done with this. How many times have you said, this is the last time I'm ever going to do this? And then you find yourself back there again, days, weeks, months, maybe even it's years. The reason is, is it promises you some kind of 
change, and transformation. It's a lie. It's a bankrupt promise. It's one that actually never pays or fulfills, but it's actually there in our hearts. And we've been trained to think, hey, these things on the license side would soothe in such a way that I'll be okay. And the things on the legalism side would control in such a way that I'll be okay. And he just says there again, they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You don't have the power. You need help from, from, from the outside coming in. You need help from God himself coming to actually rescue you. In that space, what, what this text puts in front of us is a choice. And these are active words to seek and to set our hearts on the things that are above or below. And you could just stop for a moment and you could take stock. You could just ask how you're doing. Where does your affection go? Where does your fears go? Where does your mind go? What are you daydreaming about? What are you longing for? What do you keep saying, if I just had this, then I would finally be okay? Where is your mind set? Is it on the system of the world that actually is all around you so loud that it can be really compelling and convincing? Or is it set above? In ways that actually transform in real ways, but maybe they take longer. In ways that actually have real life, but maybe it feels distant to the world around you. There's this promise in this text or, or this invitation or this ask that you would think about what's above rather than what's below. He's going to talk about this in the next two sections. He's going to use taking off language in 5 to 11 take off the things of death or the things of the earth. And he's going to say, then put on the things that are in line with what it means to actually follow God as his people. And so now we're back into that little diagram. These are those three circles. And they, they work together. So you don't just like trust Jesus academically. It looks like something in your real life. This idea of setting your mind on things that are above is not simply cognitive. The Bible doesn't know of something that's just in your head. It's meant to move from your head in an integrated way throughout your whole body into your heart. So to set your mind on things that are above is to direct your affections and your gaze towards what's true about God. And because of that, you're quick to take off the things of the earth that will not pay and will not satisfy and put on the things that are in keeping with or in line with what God has actually done. So just drop down to verse 12 of chapter 3. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and he names compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. He's saying, would you put on the clothes of one who's actually already been justified and forgiven and free, as one who's chosen and holy and beloved, one who's been raised, one who's hidden with Christ would be the language from these first four verses. Would you put on those garments in a way that actually covers you? And it's a call to just think about where you are. It's a call to think about how you're living your life. And to remember, this is not concepts. God intends our relationship with him to be consuming. He wants it to actually be consuming. I want to look at just one other passage. Would you flip over to Romans chapter 8? It was in your reading guide this week. The language is really, really similar. But Romans 8 talks through what it means to set our minds on things above. Let me just as like some texture or a way to kind of fill in some gaps for you. Let, let me read some verses here from Romans chapter 8. It's on page 944 if you're in a pew Bible. Just listen to this. He says this, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what Jesus promises and offers to you is not just a rigid way of living to prove yourself. It's freedom from condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You hear that above and below language there? For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. These things that we run to, you know they never actually satisfy. They promise some sort of change in power, but they only actually bring death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is instead life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. If you've been hidden with Christ in God, if you've been raised with Him, if you've trusted Him, right? He comes inside of you and dwells in you when He forgives you of your sin. If that's true, then the Spirit of God is in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And then he's going to talk about identity, sonship, adoption. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's your option. To live that way is actually bringing about more death. But by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God our sons of God. This gospel story that we trust actually changes our identity. We move from being enemies to sons and daughters. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That becomes the identity. Not enemies and alien and distant, but adopted children. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He's going to go on to talk about the help that we get from the Spirit, how God's not wasting any of our pain, and nothing can separate us from his love. But this beautiful promise here is that this identity that Jesus gives us changes and transforms us because it sets us free. So as he's putting this option in front of you, to hear that you don't have to pursue the things of the flesh anymore. You've been set free, it says, if you've trusted in Jesus. Now, apart from Christ, your only master is slavery to sin. Your only master is actually the things of the flesh, which is why Jesus came to actually deal cosmically with the rulers and authorities and powers to deal with the atonement of the sin inside so that you could actually be set free and liberated and forgiven. And then as one who trusts Christ transformation begins to take root in your heart as you live into the identity of one who is hidden with Christ, who's been raised with Christ, who is actually in Christ. So it brings us to our last point here, which we'll move really quickly to. If, if the object of our transformation is Jesus, you have two options, the flesh and the spirit, that promise change. One leads towards death and one leads towards life. He ends this little section with an orientation to give us hope for change and transformation. Look with me in verse 3. He says there's a past, a present, and a future that's happened. He says, if you have died in the past and your life is 
presently hidden with Christ in God. Then when Christ who is your life appears, then you will in the future appear with him in glory. Christ is the object of our transformation. He lays these options in front of us, asking, hey, which one will actually bring about life? And then he encourages you with his finished work. That Christ has already paid the penalty. He's already died, gives you a security as you're holding on to something for a foundation to ask, how might I actually be changed and transformed? And then to say that it is, it is with you now, with Christ, who, who is your life, that you've been hidden with him in Christ, that he is hidden in there, means he's with you now in the present. It's not just this historic thing that's in the distant past. It's presently actually having an effect. Your life is currently, presently hidden with Christ in God. And Romans 8 says that adoption means we have the Spirit. So historically, he dealt with the punishment for your sin. Presently, he's inside of you with his presence. That you're not alone. Nothing separates you from his love. So when you're facing these lies or these temptations or the allure of things that promise life that only lead to death, to know that he's with you changes everything. And the one who's with you is the one who says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's not there as just someone who's slapping your hand or somebody who's actually punishing you. He's there to remind you to set your mind on things above, to, to set your heart on things that will actually change you, to seek the things that will actually bring life to you. Presently, he's with you. And then he says, oh, friends, and in the future, it's not, it's not just now. There's more God is doing. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. There's this longing for the next life. One reason why I love us singing old hymns is there's often this common theme that runs through this, my past, my present, and my future. There's this longing for heaven and the resurrection that, that marks so many of these old songs because God's people needed to be reminded of where they were going. That if Paul says, if all we have is hope for this life, we should actually be, be pitied. And the presence of the Spirit is pretty beautiful and having your shame and condemnation dealt with in the past is pretty amazing but to think about there actually being more of what God wants to do like motivates and makes possible your change and transformation as we start this little journey I wanted to kind of plant a flag where this text plants it which is the hope for transformation coming because of who Christ is and what he's done you you can be changed because of who Christ is and what he's done. And it's what we celebrate every week in communion. When you hold this little piece of bread, you're reminded of what he has done for you. You're saying he's actually present with you now, and you're saying there'll be a day when you share this meal with him again in glory, when things will actually be ultimately set free and made new. There's this hopefulness that we kind of remind ourselves of, but it's this symbol, too, of how transformation is made possible. That he did die, he shed his blood, his body was broken, and by faith you can trust him and be forgiven and free. And we're nourished every week by the good news of that gospel. So, so with that in your heart and mind, I want to just ask you to get ready for communion if you're a follower of Jesus. The way we do that here is we tear a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup. There'll be service here at the end of the aisles. There'll be a gluten-free station here in the middle. There's some little cups on the side if that's more comfortable for you. What you're doing, though, is you come forward as you're declaring that, that Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. He is with you now and he will come again and you have a future. And all of that is a transformed reality because of what Christ has done. And it's an alien to yourself. It comes from the outside in in ways that actually transform you and change you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, 
I'm going to just ask you to stay in your seat and pray. There's prayers on the back of your worship guide or that little bulletin that will give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray. The meal that we're about to take is for those who are trusting in Christ. And if that's not you, just stay in your seat and, and pray. But as you pray, would you pray with these words in your mind that God offers you like freedom from death. He offers you forgiveness of sins. He offers you change and transformation. Real change and transformation, not just temporary from the stuff you're facing now, but something substantive from the inside out. That, that's an invitation to you that you could pray into. We'd love to talk with you after the service if Christ is doing something to call you to himself. Would you bow your head with me for just a moment? Let me pray, and then we'll sing together as we take communion. Jesus, would you come now in this moment and help us as we reflect on what you did to make transformation possible? Jesus, thanks that you died, that you were buried, and that you raised, which makes being risen with you possible. We just want to stop and say thanks for what you've done and ask that you would nourish us with those truths in ways that actually begin to affect us and our affections as we're faced with choices between life and death and things from below and things from above. Would you, would you feed us with the goodness of who you are, strengthen us actually to trust you? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, come when you're ready, and then we'll sing together.